He's glad. Let's give the Lord a hand. Amen. You know, while while uh, we're all getting, isn't it crazy to get excited and clap and get joy? Brooklyn, let me tell you, when you first sang, I was shocked because I had never heard you sing before. Now when you sing, I expect you to sing awesome. So I'm like, well, she did it again. So it's just beautiful, Brooklyn. You are a psalmist. You're not just a singer. And uh, that voice is a trumpet, and uh, you'll break apart the darkness because of that voice here. You keep doing it. Amen. Amen. While we have our young people upstairs and our teachers upstairs, uh, it's a very special weekend for us because school has started for some and school has not started for others. And uh, at our at our LAP Academy, we don't start until after Labor Day. We follow with uh, with uh, District 205, so we don't start until after next week as well. So if we could have our all our school age children and college kids and everyone that's involved with school did I say that right Rod did I do that did that cover everyone yeah all our in students if we can have all our students and teachers of those students uh, should we do the students first and then the teachers or should we just blend it all together let's blend it all let's just make a nice cappuccino here so yes they do so if we can have all our teachers and students come on up here we want to pray for all of you. Look at this. Take a good look. If someone's got a camera, once we get set up, take a picture, please. This is beautiful. So this is our church, a lot of young people here, and uh, an amazing thing. And I just want you to know, we all know the challenges that school, uh, and only the teachers can know and explain that, all the challenges that these students face, and the challenges of teaching each child at their need and at their, at their point of contact. And so we want to pray specifically that God would use these people, these teachers, to, uh, to bless the schools that they're in and bring light to a dark world. Amen? Amen. Reading, writing, arithmetic is really good, but you know what's really awesome? Someone on fire for Jesus Christ. So we want to pray that uh, these kids in this church will be on fire for Jesus Christ and not bow their knee to peer pressure, and that the teachers have the patience and fortitude to get them to the next level. Amen. Lord, we just thank you for our young people today. For our teachers, and Lord, we just pray right now a blessing and anointing over each and every one of them. Lord, as they study, Lord, as they dive in, Lord Jesus, to school, as they have developed new friendships, Lord, and have to face obstacles, Lord, that they didn't plan on. Lord, I thank you that you go before the teachers and that you go before the students. And Lord, that you do wonderful things for them. I pray, God, through the relationships that are forged. Maybe it's at the lunchroom, God, where there's a student that's all alone. God, maybe they go over there and reach out to them. Maybe it's a student being bullied, God, and they help pick them up and stand with them. Lord, maybe it's a situation where a kid's struggling with drugs or abuse or anything. Lord, I thank you that you give the students and the teachers the words to speak in season and out. And God, provide hope and healing, Lord, to a dark world. Lord, even when we read all the news articles and all the stuff going on at schools, Lord, I pray that as they go into these schools and they go into these situations, that God, they provide a healing touch through the power of Jesus Christ. 
And in a system that has said, we don't need God anymore. Lord, I thank you that you're thrusting us into those places and says, I'll be here anyway. And Lord, we thank you for that. And it's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 Let's give it up for all our teachers and students here. You young people can go off to Children's Church. It's going to be an awesome day for you. I kind of changed things up on my scripture, so if you look at that in your bulletin, it's wrong. We're going to edit it. It's Luke 15 that we're going to go to. If you have your Bibles this morning, we're talking about our identity. And uh, last weekend, we talked about reclaiming our identity in Christ. How many of you know it's so important for us to know who we are in Jesus Christ today? So what Jesus does in and through us is, you know, we come to Christ. And how many of you know you come to Christ and it's really not all roses. It's, it's a lot of work and there's a lot of things that we do. We, we, we kind of are looking into the past and God is trying to bring us into the future for our lives and our call. And uh, there is a restoration that needs to take place. And I think it's so important for us at all levels to understand that we are, God is in the process of rebuilding who we are. You know, you don't get rebuilt after 10 years of Christianity and your faith in Christ or 20 years or 30 years. How many of you know, how many can raise your hand and say, God is rebuilding me right now? Every day God rebuilds us and he brings and his mercies are new and we get reestablished and we might fall back and God picks us up and we learn from that and overcome that obstacles. How many of you know we don't have any perfect saints in here today? Notice how I said we don't have any perfect saints in here. You're a saint today. Luke 15. I want us to understand a story that maybe we're associated with. The parable of the lost son. Or the prodigal son. And this story maybe should have been titled the story of the prodigal's father. Because the story highlights the love of a father and the commitment of a father. Because how many of you know that son didn't have anything he could have handed to that dad? The dad had all the goods and uh, ran to him. We studied this in our last Bible study for men's group. And it really enlightened everything about this story, about the historical significance of a Jewish father and his role and the community there. And uh, let's start in Luke 15, starting in verse 11. By the way, Jim, oh my gosh, it's good to see you again back there. I forgot your name. Donnery, that's right. It's so good to see you guys. You guys are in, from California. So how did you get back here? Sorry, I get to, uh, I get to embarrass them. Are you guys bike on a biking trip? Yeah, we just drove in. Just drove in, Okay. No, no, that's beautiful. Thank you so much for coming. You guys are awesome. We love them so much. God's using them out in California. I just yeah. wouldn't, I want to tackle, I'll tackle you after service. So Luke 15, 11 through 32. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed and divided his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. 
He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his field to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming filled with love and compassion. He ran to his son, he embraced him, and he kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. And kill the fatted calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and now is returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working, and when he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother's back, he was told, and your father was killed, the fatted calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. And the older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, All these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me, and in all that time you never gave me even one young goat for a feast for my friends." Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fatted calf. His father said, Look, dear son, you have always stayed by me, and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. If that doesn't describe the story of the gospel and the way the church is supposed to be, nothing else does. Isn't that beautiful how the love of the Father, how He came running to Him, isn't that beautiful? There was a song back in the 90s and then the verse says, And He ran to me and He put His arms around me, held my head to His chest and says, My Son has come home again. Isn't it interesting that the Son had a scripted thing? Here's what I'm going to tell my dad. I'm just going to be a servant. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. And the father didn't even address it. The father didn't even go there. He didn't even listen to him about that. The contrite, humble heart that he had, no matter what, he said it didn't matter. The father said, my son's come home. We're going to have the biggest celebration of our lives. Rebuilding your identity. See, he lost his identity. And so often in life and where we're at, we lose our identity to the world, don't we? We squander it. We give our lives into the world. We sell out to what the world has to offer. We waste away. We party. We do all sorts of things. Thinking that those things will be the thing that will buy me my identity. And Christ comes in and does a beautiful thing. He doesn't shame us. He doesn't say you're going to be grounded for the next six months. God throws a party. Turn to someone and say, grace is really good. Grace is messy, isn't it? We have to account for what he's done, Pastor. Well, God did account for it. He accounted for it in a very painful way in the death of his son, Jesus. And what we have to stand on today is not ourselves and not our best foot forward. How many know you put your best foot forward and it wasn't your best foot forward? Searching for meaning. 
You know, you think of Solomon today, and he wrote in Ecclesiastes, life is meaningless without God, that only God we can find meaning. But I want to know today that Jesus is for you. He's not against you. You're a friend of God. I love all those songs that we were singing. We find our identity in Christ. And I want now to go kind of backwards into the thinking about this son and what was going to have to happen for this son to get restored. First of all, the father had every right of stoning that son, we found out in that men's Bible study. Do you know that? The community had every right in that Jewish town of putting that dude to death. It says the father ran to him for love and compassion, but you know why he also ran to him? Because he wanted to say in that moment, I'm taking care of this problem. The community is not responsible. See, we in the church think we're responsible to get everyone cleaned up. How many of you know that it's God's responsibility to clean every man, woman, and child up? We come into the kingdom, and Christ does the cleanup. He does the mess. He does the quality control. And he said, I've got this child. This sin, this problem, this setback. See, I've got it. And insert your name into that. See, we think of it like this. And this is wrong, and this is the religiosity that we get in the legalism. We all think, well, I've, I've never been a prodigal son, Pastor. I've never had those kind of deep seated issues. But see, here's the thing you are the prodigal son. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You were dead in trespasses and sins. You and me. Well, I would never do that. You know, the, the older brother's sin was he was that pompous religious jerk, wasn't he? Right, right. <laughs> he would have rather seen his younger brother get stoned because he deserved what was coming to him. You don't have to raise your hand to this, but how many of the church say, well, they're just getting what's coming to them. Yeah, they deserve it. Yep, yep, yep. Who are you? See, what makes churches grow and what makes churches thrive and what makes churches energetic is not knockerball. <laughs> Although that kind of could. But the love of Christ reaching out to people, a lost, dying, crying humanity. Do you know, uh, oh gosh, that crusade that just happened. What's his name? Harvest. Harvest. 28,000 people opening night came to Christ. Pretty cool. See, what's happening in America is a vacuum is being produced and people are looking for hope. And people are looking. They are the prodigal son and they understand that they've ran and that they've gone after a wild living and they've gone after saying, I want my inheritance. I'm going to take my stuff. And we just waste life away and we say, where are the answers now? We say, oh, there's still an answer. God hasn't given up on you yet. You're reclaiming and rebuilding your identity. Turn to someone and say, I need my identity rebuilt. Timothy Keller writes about Christ. One of the most powerful things about Jesus Christ today for you and I is he's our advocate. He's our advocate. You say, what's the advocate? We're going to get into some legal schmiegel jargon today in the courtroom of life. Because if we're dead and there is a justice law that bar that's been set. And the Bible in Romans tells us that every person, even if they don't know God, 
know that in their life they have, there is a justice, there is a bar. How many of you know we, we understand deep, deep-seated that there's some law that we have surpassed and gone around and crossed, and now there's going to be some kind of accountability to that? If Jesus is your advocate, the law of God is now completely for you. It's on your side of the scale. When you put your faith in Jesus, when you say from your heart, Father, accept me because of what Jesus did, then Jesus' work on the cross is transferred to your account. Folks, let's first deal with the guilt of sin. How many of you have ever had the guilt of sin in their life? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Let's turn there. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. God saved you by His grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, Mr. and Mrs. Olderson. So none of us can boast about it, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he has planned for us long ago. So the deal was this, that there was nothing we can do to earn or gain salvation. Let's just get that straight. Can I get a hearty amen there? You and I don't get to rescue ourselves. See, in every testimony when you come to Christ, it was never like, well, I did this and I improved my life there and I became self-aware here and I did this. When you start to hear, I, 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 me, 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 that person hasn't found Christ. They are more selfish than they've ever been before in their life. No, no, no. You didn't find Christ. Christ found you. You didn't do four good things to get up on top of the hill. Christ came down from heaven, the perfect place, into earth because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son he reached out and picked you up. That's where religion's got it all wrong. We think we rise to something and climb to something. There was no climbing we could do. We were dead in trespasses and sins. You and I don't get to rescue ourselves. You know, you think about the deep oceans out in life, and they're waiting for someone to rescue them. They're just kind of floating in the water. There is nothing they can do. Think of your life before Christ like that, where you're just bobbing back and forth with your face just above the water. And Christ in His perfect timing came to you and He came to me and He rescued us. Maybe it was drug addiction. Maybe it was another thing. Maybe it was anxiety. Maybe it was depression and you thought it was the end and you thought it was hopeless. But God hasn't given up on you. Amen. You don't rescue yourself. God rescues you. And so for a believer today, you might be steeped in a religion, in your religion, in your tradition, in your daily exercise, and right now you are drowning in a sea of trying to get it done yourself, and you need to be reinvigorated and rebuilt with the understanding of all the grace and all the mercy, and thank God for an advocate in Jesus Christ. That he intercedes for me and for you. I always say this, 
Aren't you glad Jesus didn't eat a cup of coffee this morning? <laughs> Can you imagine Jesus getting up in the morning and going, Whoa, it's going to be a long day for Steve and me. <laughs> Give me an extra shot of espresso. <laughs> no, Jesus says it like this. I got this. I got you in the palm of my hand. I'll work harder. Turn to someone and say, you're working too hard. You don't get to rescue yourself. A counselor, by the way, when we look up the word advocate, it means counselor, helper, and non-biblical literature, parakletos had the technical meaning of an attorney who peers in court on another's behalf. I want to go on to read what Timothy Keller says. He said, this is what the Bible teaches, that we all stand judged. Let's get that straight. There is a standard for our lives that we must deal with. And here's the dilemma. If the Bible is wrong and there is no God, if there is no bar of justice and violence and injustice are just natural, then what hope is there for the world? But is there a bar of justice? Then what hope is there for you and me? No one lives up to even his or own moral standards, let alone God. Look at the golden rule. Do unto others as you have them do unto you. Everybody agrees to that rule, yet who actually is keeping it? What do you think the conscious is? According to Paul in Romans 2, the conscious is like a radio receiver picking up transmissions from the seat of justice. You think, oh, the reason I always feel guilty is because of my mother. She did this to me. So you've gotten a lot of therapy, but you still feel guilty. Why is that? Well, a poor family background may twist your conscience so it overreacts to some things and underreacts to others, but your family couldn't create that sense of guilt. It can only aggravate it. Paul writes that those who don't know God's law nonetheless show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their consciences also bear witness, and their thoughts are sometimes accusing them. So if this divine judgment exists, it's not merely a problem for us later. It's a problem for us now. We give it names to allow us to blame others for it. Lack of self-esteem, shame, guilt. But really, it's the bar of justice that even healthy consciences are challenging into our lives, our emotions, our self-understanding every minute we're awake. Even when we clear away from overbearing parents and oppressive cultural norms, even when we are left with our own freely chosen moral standards, we still feel accused. There's a voice within us telling we are fools, we are imposters, we are failures, and we are not where we should be. So deep down we know this bar of justice is there, just as the Bible tells us, and we know we are in no condition to stand alone. So that's where we find ourselves, guilty. The prodigal knew it, I'm guilty. We used to say in jail ministry to the guys who were in jail in those orange uniforms, those orange jumpsuits, the only difference between you and me is you guys got caught. Because we're all guilty. The law stands in us. If you've broken one of the Ten Commandments, the Bible declares, you're guilty of the law. So maybe as opposed to us comparison shopping our own morality and placing against this person and that person and how you sit side by side with something else, 
Maybe you should place your morality and understand that the guilt stain is that my sin and your sin put Jesus on the cross. I stand guilty. Jesus the Advocate. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. Toward the back of your Bible. Don't you want to get away from that guilt? Well, we're going to, I promise. That's just point one. We will not leave here guilty today. So this is to believers. This isn't to unbelievers, this verse. This is to the body of Christ and understanding. 1 John 2, verse 1. My dear children, I am writing this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have a what? Advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins. Not only our sins, but the sins of the whole world. See, in the Old Testament, what you would see is the priest would, you would offer a sacrifice. They would have all sorts of sacrifices that they would offer. They would have the Day of Atonement, and then you would have your daily sacrifices, yearly sacrifice. The head of the household would bring a sacrifice to cover the sins of the whole family. And Jesus became that priest offering the sacrifice. He became the sacrifice. He becomes the advocate. Timothy Keller writes, Jesus Christ is not primarily an example of moral behavior, though he is. Not primarily a loving supporter, though he is. Those things would be helpful, but on their own they fall short of what we need. If the bar of justice exists and our consciousness bear the witness to the fact that it does, we need a true advocate. Here's what an advocate is. Charles Hodge once said in a court, you disappear into your advocate. Now, I haven't been represented in a court of law before, thankfully. I have not needed an, a lawyer to represent Steve Lapp. But maybe you've been in a situation, whether it's business or personal, where you needed a lawyer, a good lawyer. And that lawyer is your advocate. And that lawyer, you kind of fall into your advocate. You disappear into your advocate. If your stammer is eloquent, what do you look like in court? If you have a good advocate, you look brilliant. In some cases... You may not even be required to speak or appear personally in court. Your attorney appears in your place as your substitute. So what do you look like in court? You look like whatever your advocate looked like. If your advocate wins, you win. And if your advocate loses, in short, you've lost your advocate, you and your advocate are one. If you sin, what do you need? Do you need a good example? A supportive helper? Do you need somebody who can show you how to pick yourself up and try harder? Somebody who comes alongside and says you can do it? Someone who knows the law and can tell you how you've broken it? Yes, you need all of these, but that isn't your primary need. You need, to, you, you need not just a good lawyer, but a perfect advocate to appear before the Father. After we realize that, the enemy will try to wear us down with something else. And he'll try to lie to us and to wear us down. But how many of you know you had that good advocate... And today you have got that eternal mercy and that grace and that forgiveness. And you are new in Christ. J.I. Packer writes this. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, 
find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and his prayers, his whole outlook on life, it means that he doesn't understand Christianity very well at all. Today, the first thing you should leave here understanding is that you are a child of God. I'm a child of God. He's my dad. The Bible says that we can cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy. It's a very intimate term. You are his child. First John chapter 3, verse 1. Just go one chapter further. Jesus does love you, and he's for you today. Amen. See how very much our Father loves us? For he calls us his children, and that is what we are. But the people who belong to this world don't recognize that we are God's children because we don't know them. Isn't it beautiful? He calls us because the Father loves us so very much. Courtney Docker writes this, The devil's goal is to make you believe that you are still a slave, an orphan, an illegitimate child, anything other than the beloved child of your father. The lie of the slave says you have to work hard to secure and sustain God's love. Mess up and you're out. Your worth is tied to your ability to produce and behave. The slave is always working, never resting. Isn't it crazy with the prodigal son that he said, what I can do when I get back home is I can just work as a servant for my dad. That's what his goal was. You know, many in the church, they, they kind of bleed this salvation with this working for God mentality. Folks, if you never did another thing for God, God wouldn't love you anymore. He loves you, or any less. The lie of the slave says that you have to work, and you have to work hard to secure and to sustain God's love. Mess up and you're out. Your worth is tied to your ability to produce and behave. The slave is always working and never resting. Why don't we turn real quick back to Genesis chapter 32. we got to get our identities back. And a beautiful story that I want us to understand today is the story of Jacob. Genesis 32. Jacob was a trickster. He stole his brother's birthright. He took on his identity. How many know in life we can manipulate and we kind of aren't, are something we're not? We put on this person, we're like, well, this will work, and we manipulate and we power play whatever we are to get where we're going and to get success. And God wants to strip all that away. And usually how he does it is when you get alone with him or find yourself alone. You know, loneliness is a thing that we don't want to have, but loneliness can be some of the greatest gift that God can ever give us. Elizabeth Elliot has a book called Pathway to Loneliness. And it was a beautiful book. After her husband passed away and died as a missionary, she went through a very lonely season of time, and she understood how God was working in her life. As she was extremely lonely, she found God, her present help in time of trouble. Genesis chapter 32, verse 22. Jacob wrestles with God. During the night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two servant wives and his 11 sons, and crossed the Jabbok River with him. After taking them to the other side, he sent over all his possessions. So everything's over there. His possessions, his family, 
his, his um, everything. This left Jacob all alone in the camp, and a man came and wrestled with him until the dawn began to break. When the man saw that he would not win the match, he touched Jacob's hip, and he rinsed it out from its socket. And the man said, Let go of me, for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What's your name? The man asked. He replied, Jacob. Your name will no longer be Jacob, the man told him. For now on you will be called Israel, because you have fought with God and with men, and you have won. Folks, there is so much in here, and there is so much value. Jacob wrestles with God that evening. And I think for us to understand it's not going to be this quick thing. It's going to require things being stripped away from our lives. Jacob got a blessing and his name was changed. Mark Sayers writes about Jacob. Years after the blessing incident, we find Jacob crossing a river. His family, his possessions had been sent to the other side, and he was left all alone. For a man who disliked himself enough to manipulate others, even taking the image of his brother, being alone must have been a frightening experience. When we are alone, we are on the battlefield where those unredeemed parts of ourselves open fire on us. The Bible tells us that while he was alone, Jacob wrestled with an unknown assailant. The mysterious stranger could not beat Jacob, so he touched his hip and he dislocated it. The fight continued all night. Jacob refused to let the man go until he gave him all the blessing. The man demanded to know Jacob's name. Jacob told him, but the assailant gave him a new name. New names were given in the Bible as a way of noting radical and profound change in a person. The mystery fighter renamed Jacob Israel, and in Hebrew, Jacob means trickster and is linked to the concept of crooked. Israel means to struggle with God and humans and is also linked to the idea of straight. So that's the idea you get back on a straight path with your God-given identity in life. How many of you know, man, you struggle sometimes with that God-given identity that he has placed for you? That you are his child. Harold Kirshner writes, At the end of the struggle, Jacob is injured and limping, but the Bible nonetheless describes him as shalim, a Hebrew word with connotations of wholeness, integrity, being at peace with oneself. The word is related to shalom, peace. Shalom means wholeness, everything fitting together, nothing missing, nothing broken. Shalom for you as an individual means no more fighting with yourself, no quarreling between two halves of your soul. Folks, there is a wholeness that will start to happen with your life. When you truly find Christ and when you are identified with God, the divided parts of your soul that you're being saved, Paul tells us, come together and you become a whole person. A whole person is not a perfect person, but a whole person is a very peace driven, obeying Christ, loving God person whose intention is to hit the target that God has for them. Mark Sayers writes, Jacob tried to create a false self, a self that was not him. Though struggle and determination through warfare with the monsters that moved him away from his true self, he found shalom. Turn real quick to John chapter 5 verse 6 and let's see that wholeness idea. And Sandra, I'm not going to let you turn there. You're going to have to come up here. You can read it up there. I'll read it with you. John 5, verse 6. 
Actually, we'll just start in verse 1. We might as well tell the story. Here's a guy who's sick for many years. Have you ever met people who enjoy staying where they're at? They like the miserable life. They love being miserable. They really do. See, what Jesus offers to you and me is wholeness. Some people love being just good old-fashioned, funny, unhappy duddies, and they love to blame the world on all their problems. So this is the part now where we grow up and we mature. How many of you know you can be 90 years old and still acting like a 14-year-old? So maturity is an age. Our identity isn't even age. We know that by how people dress nowadays. <laughs> Would you be well, Jesus asks. John 5, verse 1 says, Afterwards, Jesus returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holy days. Inside the city, near the sheep gate, was the pool of Bethesda. With five covered porches, crowds of sick people, blind, lame, or paralyzed, lay on the porches. One of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him and knew he had been ill for a long time, this is Steve Lapp, he asked him a really silly question. Would you like to get well? And he says, I can't, sir. The sick man said, for I have no one to put me in the pool. When the water bubbles up, someone else gets there ahead of me. How many use that for excuses with God all the time? Jesus told him, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. Instantly, the man was healed. He rolled up his sleeping mat and began walking. But this miracle happened on the Sabbath, so the Jewish leaders objected. That part's insignificant to what I'm trying to say here. But isn't it interesting, Jesus said, do you want to be made whole? And I think the, the question for us believers today is, do we want to be whole? Are we going to stay in the victim status for life? Are we going to stay in under this, no one lets me, and every time I try to do this, and every time I try to get ahead, that person gets ahead of me. Can I tell you, like in life, with your career even, and your focuses and all you do, do you know that person that got ahead of you didn't get ahead of you? Jesus put them there ahead of you? And you get a hearty amen there. Do you know when you go through life and you get taken advantage of and things don't go your way, do you know Jesus is still with you in all of that process? Amen. And can you honestly believe for a moment with me, if you truly want to be made whole, will you stop looking at yourself as a victim? Now, secular counselors will pet you. We don't pet here. We proclaim here. <clears throat> secular counselors will tell you that your mom and dad didn't hug you enough when you were younger. But I will tell you today that you've been given the greatest hug in your life and Jesus died on the cross for your sins. See, secular counseling can only deal with surface issues. It can't deal with the soul. When Jesus' word comes in, he cuts through to the bone and the marrow. The truth of God's word is what inspires you and wakes you up. That paralyzed man did not think for one moment that his legs would ever work again. And you know, here's the crazy thing. The answer for him wasn't to go get him some other apparatus to help him 
work and cope. We use these coping things in life. And our self-help gurus give us coping mechanisms and lean on this and lean on that. You only can lean on one thing, and that is Jesus Christ. And God strips us of all of our coping and all of our victimhood and all of the things where people did us wrong and says, I'm asking you a simple question, Steve. I am asking you a simple question, Nate. I am asking you a simple question, Sean. Did you want to be whole? And do you know what? Here's the crazy thing about the gospel. We have what's called a free moral agency. That man had a choice there that day, didn't he? Do you know what would have happened? He, God would have kept walking on by and he would have spent another 30 years on that mat if he didn't. Healing is not automatic. And healing is a choice. And today, believers, as God rebuilds you, maybe you have all these things and God is starting to take them away and maybe it's time that we do like what Jacob did and we throw stuff to the other side of the shore. Put your kids over there. Put your wife over there. Put your possessions over there. And maybe we stand in the presence of God and we say, God, speak to me now. Because it's not these things that are my problem. The, the parents, the kids, the problems, the lack of money, the finances, whatever it is. Those aren't the problems. Amen. God, it starts with me. I want to be made whole. Amen. I want to be right. I want to be shalom. I want to have the peace of God that passes all understanding. Because some of us thrive in the energy of things being wrong and Man, we, we don't even know what it means to be whole anymore because we have been so electrified by things and so motivated by other stuff. We don't even know what peace that passes understanding even means anymore. Amen. Folks, I know this is difficult because the world would tell us otherwise, but God wants to give you a new identity. Amen. He really does. Why don't we close our eyes for a moment? Folks, that man was healed because he wanted to be healed. And your badge today is not all the pain. The badge today is Jesus Christ's proclamation over you that says you are his friend and I am for you. I am your advocate. Today can we sink into that advocate? Can we become one with the Father today? Can we know the peace that passes understanding in the midst of craziness? Can we, like the prodigal son, understand what we've done in our motivations and trying to twist and contort life and telling God how our lives are to be determined and how we've prayed to God and dictated the terms? And when we found that the money's run out, and the energy's run out. We don't have any more energy. We don't know how to manipulate anymore. We wore the costumes. It all gets stripped away and God gives us a brand new identity and says, Now I will rebuild in you because you're my masterpiece. You are free for whoever the sun sets free is free indeed. Today, son or daughter, saint, you say, man, I'm choosing right now to be like Jacob. I'm choosing today to be like the prodigal son. I'm choosing today to be like this 
lame man. And I'm putting aside the excuses and saying, God, I do want to be made whole. Give me the zeal again. Give me the determination again, God, as you rebuild in me. God, sorry that I've tried to rescue myself. Today you say, you know what, I want God to now start remaking me. Right now, if that's you, I want you to raise your hands today and I want to pray with you a blessing. Thank you. 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 God's for you. God's for you. God's for you. What you do so that right now where you're at all of us, just say, God's for me. God's for me. Say, you are for me. 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 The Bible speaks over you in that me. And when Christ fills us, it will bubble forth, overflowing. And I pray a blessing over you, dear ones, who are choosing today to throw the stuff to the other side. And the mechanisms that you had in place that used to kind of temporarily sustain you. And now you cleave to your advocate. Oh, he's a helper, he's a counselor. But he is the one to go in between that provides the grace and he provides the mercy and that he sustains and that he heals and that he qualifies you. Today, dear one, you are qualified. Today, dear one, I pray the blessing of qualification. You are not disqualified because of that sin. You are not disqualified because of the setback. You are not disqualified because... You thought what the boundaries were. And you might have been like the lame man. And you have provided the reasons for where you are. And God is saying, I don't work within those boundaries. I am the maker and creator of heavens and earth. I am the one who makes a masterpiece out of you. You don't determine your boundaries. I do. Today we are not slaves. Today we are friends. And I speak over all of you that have raised your hand and admitting your need for being rebuilt and saying that your future is beautiful. That your tomorrow is now. And that the needs and the desires of your heart will be fulfilled through Jesus Christ. I say to you today that have been trying to rebuild your image, that you were created in the image and likeness of God. I say to you today that you will put the tools down and God will now build you. He makes you new. He makes me new. Let's declare this today, all of us, together. With a pride and understanding that I am a son and a daughter of God.
Dear Jesus, thank you for rebuilding me, for taking the old out and making all things new. I cry out to you, Abba, Daddy, I thank you, God, that I am a masterpiece because of your mercy, not because of my best foot forward. I thank you, God, today that I am a masterpiece because of your grace. I thank you, God, today that your mercies are new every day. Thank you, God, that you shine on me your glory and your anointing and that you give me a new name. In Jesus' name. Amen. Wow, so good. So good as God rebuilds us. God gives us a name. You know, when I, me and Ann were naming our children, we'd sit down, we were sitting down at the time, I think it was Barnes and Nobles in that little cafe there, and we'd go through book after book trying to find one that wasn't just relevant. Isn't it funny what the way we name the kids nowadays today? It's like, they're cool names. But, uh, but finding a name that would be not only relevant and contemporary, but also something that had biblical infusion and founded of God. We believed in naming our kids what God wanted us to name them. And then it's funny how their names represent who they are. God gives you a new name and it's going to represent who you are. Know today, God, you're, or guys, you're being rebuilt in Christ Jesus. Blessings to you. There's something you want to pray about. We can stand in the gap for. Don't leave here today without grabbing me or someone else that you can pray with and stand and believe with you and allow God's wholeness and his peace to enter into your life. Amen. We love you guys so much. And by the way, to all the people who volunteered for this event, I give you a hearty, hearty thank you, thank you. It was unbelievable. All the people who were there at the beginning, at the end, and in between. All the smiling faces. Uh, when the people showed up yesterday, they weren't showing up to Grumpyville. They were showing up to Happyville. So we loved it. And uh, just thank you so much to everyone who just busted it for Turning Point. We love you guys so much. Have a wonderful, wonderful week. We'll see you later. Mm -hmm.